Well, good morning. Welcome again to our online service here at South Suburban Christian Church. Uh, thank you for joining us. If you're on our online.church platform or if you're listening on our podcast, wherever you get your podcast, or on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash South Suburban Christian Church. We appreciate your support and we are grateful that you continue to uh, place your faith and your trust not only in the work that God is doing throughout His church throughout the world, but also here at South Suburban Christian Church. Your financial support is what allows us uh, to do what we do, to be able to come to you uh, online. And as we begin to look toward gearing up for in-person worship, hopefully very, very soon we'll be giving you more information as the weeks uh, go by and as our uh, governing board and, and eldership and uh, volunteers uh, begin laying the plans uh, for what life will look like in the upcoming weeks and months. Uh, we do want to remind you, please don't forget, Pastor Joe is going to remind you of our Easter service outside this Easter. Uh, we hope that you have put that on your calendar and that we will gather together outside in our parking lot to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ as we conclude uh, this Lenten series, this series during Lent, Out of the Ashes. Uh, our first week we covered Adam and Eve, last week was Miriam and Moses, and this week we're looking at David and Bathsheba. So if any of you remember that from your Sunday school lessons, you'll know that we have an interesting uh, topic to be looking at today. It's a huge story, and I'm going to begin by just reading a few verses near the end of that story, and then we're going to go back and kind of uh, backtrack and look through this story as we seek to see uh, the ashes that uh, David and, and Bathsheba found themselves up to their necks in and how God responded. So if you have your Bibles, our text uh, as we begin our message today comes from 1 Kings uh, chapter 1, and I'm just going to read just a couple of verses. Now if you want to look at the entire section of this, it's 1 Kings chapter 1 verse 28 through 37. Uh, but as we get into the message, you'll see that the story really is significantly larger. And I'd encourage you to take time this week to read the entire story of David and Bathsheba and the aftermath and how God ultimately redeemed that situation. So if you found uh, 1 Kings chapter 1, beginning in verse 33, And the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord and have Solomon, my son, ride on my own mule, and bring him down to Gihon. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. Here ends the reading of God's holy and perfect word. May he add his blessings and his understanding to it. Well, as I've shared with you, we're finding ourselves in the season of Lent in this five-week series out of the ashes, then Palm Sunday, when we celebrate Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. Pay close attention to that. And then, of course, Resurrection Sunday, uh, or as it's commonly known, Easter Sunday. Um, during these uh, five weeks, what we have done, is, is, uh, or what we're going to be doing, is looking at these characters, these individuals, these situations, uh, that in some cases, a lot of us may have overlooked in our regular Bible study, or we may have some faint memory of it. And then some of them are very well known, and so we want to go back and look at them. This story of David Bathsheba, uh, for a lot of folks who've been in the church all of their life, this is a very well-known story, but it may not be for you. 
And so uh, I'm excited to be able to share this story with you if it's for the first time. Uh, but I'm also excited to share this story with you if you've known it all your life as, uh, as we look at this situation between King David and Bathsheba. The story actually begins way back in 2 Samuel, which is the book just prior to 1 Kings. So if you turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11, would encourage you to do that. And uh, the, the, uh, the, the story is a long story, as I've already sh- uh, shared. It unfolds over the next 16 chapters. Uh, chapters 11 through 24 in 2 Samuel, and then chapters 1 and 2 in the book of 1 Kings. Uh, this would be a great story for a retreat, I think, especially a men's retreat. Uh, a ton of lessons here uh, that I think that could make us, my brothers, better husbands, fathers, and servants of Jesus, but really a retreat for anyone, for women, from this perspective from Bathsheba. But it really is a story that I'd encourage you to take some time and really delve into over this coming week. Spend some time reading it and rereading it and studying it. Now, over the previous two weeks, we've seen how brokenness enters into our lives, how sin and rebellion become a part of our life. We looked at Adam and Eve, how they fell into sin through temptation, and how we human beings have a tendency to duck our responsibilities for our actions uh, like Adam and Eve did. Yet, in the midst of that, God still brings life. Remember, Eve, the name Eve means living. Uh, Last week, we saw how prejudice and pride lead us to rebellion when uh, Miriam and Aaron rebelled against Moses. And in that case, uh, God said that to rebel against Moses was the same as rebelling against God and the judgment that came out of that. But again, out of that story, in the midst of the dry and parched desert, God brings life, brings water. To, uh, to not only quench the thirst of the people, but to bring life to creation. Now today, I want to break down the lesson of how David, who saw himself as the apple of God's eye, you can go read that in Psalm 17, verse 8, how David fell into sin, and how that act dramatically and negatively impacted so many people, his own household, if not the entire kingdom. We're going to see all of the folks who, who suffered because of David's action. It's one of those lessons that I think is important for, for, we to be, um, for us to be uh, uh, mindful of, that a lot of times we think that our failings just impact us. Uh, it's okay for me to do that because I'm the only one that's getting hurt by it. But what we really see is, is that when we... Uh, uh, see the brokenness and rebellion of human beings, even if it's in a particular individual case, there are repercussions like ripples in a pond when you throw a stone that affect more than just the person who's involved in the act of rebellion or the act of sin. All of our actions impact those who are around us, whether it's our family, our neighbors, our friends, our church members. Um, you know, I'm, I'm always intrigued when, you know, I'm getting to that age now where, where maybe I pay attention to obituaries more than I did maybe, say, 20 years ago, and I'm beginning to see people my age die. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but one of the things that I've noticed that people do is they always want to know, well, why did they die? Oh, well, 
well, you know, that, that he, he, he didn't eat very well. He didn't take care of his body, he didn't exercise. Oh, she, she smoked all of her life. That's, that's why she died of, of cancer. I wonder why we do that. And I wonder if the reason that we do that is, is, is that it's one of the effective ways we can distance ourselves from the, the results of someone else's lifestyle or someone else's causes for their own death. Well, I don't, I don't overeat, I, don't, I, don't, I exercise, I don't smoke, so therefore that won't happen to me. And we do the same thing when it comes to the failures of human beings, when we see the failures and brokenness of other people. We do that with, uh, uh, with sin, with rebellion, with brokenness. I'm reading a book written by uh, Ron Rosenbaum. It's entitled Explaining Hitler, the, the Search for the Origins of His Evil. And in it, he doesn't necessarily seek to explain why Hitler did such, did such evil things, but he reviews what other people say were the reasons for Hitler doing the evil things that he did. And one of the things that worries Rosenbaum, the author, is, is that it, it frightens him because in the effort of trying to explain why Hitler did such evil things, it, distance, it distances us from Hitler. It says, well, well, he was a unique and particular case. I would never do that. I could never do that. And one of the fears that the author had is, is that uh, we, we can begin to make a myth, if you will, of Hitler, that he's unique and, and specific, and therefore we have nothing to fear because that's a, a once-in-a-century incident. I, I wish Rosenbaum had gone a step further, that uh, he might have looked at it from a more theological perspective and realized that it is something we don't like to admit, but we all are capable of great evil. Now, it may not be as horrific as what uh, the world experienced under Hitler, but we all have the capability to do horrific things. I'll never forget what an old seminary professor of mine warned us. He said, that sin which we believe we are incapable of committing will ultimately be our undoing. That sin which we believe we are incapable of committing will ultimately be our undoing. Why is that? Well, that professor said, because in those situations we don't take the precautions necessary to avoid that sin in our life. And before we know it, we too have rebelled. We too are broken. We too have committed what we said we would never, ever commit. I think there's an eternal truth in life when it comes to deceiving ourselves. A truth that perhaps even, and I would argue this, that God created Himself. And that eternal truth, that natural law, that way the world works, that God uh, put into uh, the creation, particularly the human creation, is also the same method that the powers of darkness use to cause us to fall, to cause us to rebel, to cause us to revel in our own brokenness. So I'm going to give you what I think is, is that threefold natural law, that, that, that embedded way that we respond to things, that I believe is a part of the created order, but we use for darkness and for evil. So I'm going to give those points to you 
uh, at the onset. So if you want to jot these down or they're available in our YouVersion uh, uh, Bible app. Number one, there's always an invitation. Number two, the table is always spread. And number three, the bill always has to be paid. So let's look at that first point. There is always an invitation. If we go back to 2 Samuel chapter 11 and verse 1, we see the invitation. Let me read it to you. You read along with me if you have your Bibles. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go into battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. You know, I think that's the invitation is offered. You, you see, David didn't go. And although the text doesn't specifically say why David didn't go, it probably is a pretty good bet, if you will, that he's susceptible to the same kind of temptations that all of us are susceptible to. Why would we choose the same choice that David made? Maybe what David was feeling, and if you read prior to this, you see all of the battles David's engaged in, the great victories that he's won, the, 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 the tremendous faithfulness that he had engaged in, and even in the midst of his goodness, even in the midst of his greatness, even in the midst of his victories, he still constantly was defending his kingdom, defending his authority as the king, he just was tired. He was beginning to give into the, into the, giving into the temptation that, you know, sometimes we all need a break. We all need some self-care. Isn't that the phrase that we are hearing more and more, especially in these times of, of, of deep weight and, 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 and frustration in the midst of this pandemic? You know, I don't deny any of that. We, we do need to take care of ourselves. We do need uh, to, to rest. It, it, it is a part of how God created us. God Himself took the seventh day as a day of rest when he was creating the world. But if somebody, especially a king, sends folks into war and stays home himself, that seems to me to be a problem. It seems to me to be the invitation that we begin to believe our own thoughts about how we deserve a break. We deserve special treatment. It's everybody else's responsibility, everybody else's job to go to war. And the text says all of Israel went to war. But David needed a break. You see, I think that's when the trouble started here with David. I think it's the same way in any form of leadership. If a pastor or an elder or a board member doesn't tithe, how can they expect the members of the congregation to tithe? If a pastor or an elder or a board member isn't committed to prayer in their daily life, how can they expect their congregation to be committed to prayer? If a pastor, an elder, a board member aren't committed to giving of themselves and their time and their talents, how can they expect the members over which they have been given responsibility of spiritual leadership to do the same thing? All of us have responsibilities. Every single one of us have expectations. And yet, the invitation is always being offered by the powers of darkness. Those voices that whisper to us, 
that we're different. We're the exception. We've suffered enough. And then those voices invite us to require other people to do the things and fulfill the duties that the leader shirks from. Those voices whispered to David, and David accepted the invitation to stay home. He accepted the invitation by the powers of darkness to send everybody else to fight while he stayed home. And then we see what he did when he refused to fulfill his expectations, when he refused to fulfill his responsibilities. And verse 2, It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. You know, I've already said the invitation is offered, but remember point two? The table is always spread. We find out later in verse 4 why this woman was bathing. This wasn't some seductive act on behalf of this woman. This wasn't some sort of exhibitionism. As some preachers have said that, oh, she was the one that tempted him. Nonsense. We know that the reason she was bathing was a ritual bath. Uh, the text later says that she was purifying her, herself after her season of uncleanness. <clears throat> that was a part of every woman's life once a month. And this ritual bath was commanded in the Mosaic Law. What you could really say about this woman wasn't that she was trying to be seductive. Wasn't that she was trying to lure somebody to sin. As a matter of fact, it was quite the opposite. The woman was fulfilling her obligation to the Lord. She was, you might say, gone to church that day as she was fulfilling the requirements to ritually bathe herself so that she would be clean again before the Lord after her season of uncleanness. And I think that's what's so devastating in this situation is here you have this woman through whom through, through her actions she is proving her faithfulness to God her commitment to God's law her dedication to doing what the mosaic law asked of her and in that act in that act of faithfulness in that act of 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 obedience David decides that he wants her We've all seen that look in people's eyes when they see the table spread, haven't we? They see what they can't have or that they shouldn't have. They see what they want. And that's how sin works, brothers and sisters. It shows us a lie. Like the serpent to Adam and Eve, like Aaron and Miriam, sin whispers in our ears, you deserve this. Don't you deserve some happiness too? The voices whisper. No one understands how hard your job is. It's okay if you just do this one thing. This may be wrong for everyone else, but it isn't as wrong for you. If folks just knew what you had to endure, they'd understand why you do it, why you did it. And before we know it, we see that table spread and we decide to partake. Now here's where it gets really bad in verse 3. 
David inquires about the woman. I'm grateful for David's servants. Pray for those kinds of colleagues and supports in my own life. Look, at, look with me at, at verse 3. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? What I love about this is, is that this faithful servant is trying to say, Hey boss, um, this woman that you're asking about, she's Eliam's daughter. You know who Eliam is. We don't know much about Eliam as the readers of this text. Presumably somebody of, 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 of renown, some level of renown, somebody who might be a respected elder of the Jewish people. And if that doesn't convince you, boss man, that this woman is off limits, remember she's married. She's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And she doesn't, he, the, the, the servant doesn't just say a soldier, but mentions the soldier's name, which seems to suggest that Uriah is a soldier of some renown. He, he, he some scholars have said, would have been akin to the special forces of, of our military today, a decorated special forces officer. This dear servant was trying everything that he could say to his boss, this woman is off limits. There's an opportunity in this report when David can say, ah, okay, and back away from the temptation, back away from the table that has been spread. But sin is bold, brothers and sisters. Sin has no regard for our character. It has no regard for our reputation. It only seeks to destroy us. And in verse 4, David, in, 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 in boldness that is astounding, look with me there at verse 4. So David sent messengers. He, he didn't pick just one trusted servant to sneak the woman in in the, in the middle of the night. He sent multiple people and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. Now this isn't some romance story. This, th 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 this isn't some story that we would want to see uh, you know, in the movies about how in the midst of illicit temptation, true love emerges. That rarely, if ever, happens. What we have here is an abuse of power. That's what we have here. Now, we're not surprised. This is the same guy who sent soldiers to die on the front in uh, Amman while he laid on the couch. But this is also the same guy who, when he was a boy, boldly asked the king, Is there no one in all of Israel who will stand against Goliath as he blasphemes the Lord? This is the same guy who penned those great words of that beloved psalm, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. This is the same guy who, after King Saul repeatedly tried to take his life. And when the Lord delivered Saul into David's hands, David refused to kill the king because, as he would say to his servant Saul, the Lord has anointed you, and I will never raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. You know, what we see is, is that David wasn't always a slime ball. He had moments of goodness. 
He had moments of greatness. And here is what is terrifying. He was just like you and me. And I think that is what is so devastating in this story. Well, after this act of abuse and violence, he sends her away and soon discovers that she's pregnant. And now David must have known of her morality. He didn't call her a liar. He didn't try to accuse her of having an affair with somebody else, but he believes her and he hatches a plan to cover a sin. He invites Uriah back from the battlefield and tries to get Uriah to, 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 to be with his wife so as to cover his sin. But Uriah, in, in faithfulness to a long-standing tradition in the Hebrew army where uh, soldiers would not enjoy the comforts of their family uh, while their comrade-in-arms were in battle, Uriah did the same thing and, and refused to do that, slept at the door of his house instead of uh, with his wife. And you know, even in that moment, there is still an opportunity for redemption. And David chooses not to do it. I think it begs the question for us, are we prepared to face sin in our life? Not to discuss someone else's sin, but to face our own. The answer to hidden sin is confession and repentance. To whom should we confess? Well, that, that answer is easy, too. We should confess to whom we have sinned against. If we have sinned secretly, then you should confess secretly. If you have sinned openly, then confess openly to the one you have sinned against so as to remove the stumbling blocks of those whom you have hindered in our acts of rebellion. There was a day, even in my childhood, that if you sin spiritually, prayerlessness, lovelessness, unbelief, all of which are an offspring to criticism and uh, argumentative spirit, then we were called to confess that to the church. The church would pray for us. The great evangelist Charles Spurgeon said, As soon as we are conscious of sin, the right thing is not to begin to reason with the sin or to wait until we have brought ourselves into a proper state of heart about it, but to go at once and confess the transgression unto the Lord there and then. The third point, the bill always has to be paid. David fell deeper and deeper into his rebellion until he ultimately sent the very notice to have Uriah killed on the battlefield in Uriah's own hand. Uriah carries those orders to Joab, his commander, to allow Uriah and some other soldiers to advance on the battlefield and then withdraw so that they would lose their lives. That's what happens. And Uriah falls in battle. Joab obeys King David. Well, apparently, Joab wasn't really happy with those orders because when he sends word back to David in verse 25 of chapter 11, David offers him some, well, words of consolation, one might say. David said to the messenger, verse 25, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you. <laughs> and watch what happens in verse 27. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Well, 
David may had hoped that Joab wasn't displeased, but he wasn't very good at making sure that God wasn't displeased. God was plenty displeased. And it's at this moment, opportunities for repentance and making right the wrong that had originally happened, all have been passed over. And now at this moment, the bill has to be paid. David's sin had cost Bathsheba her integrity. It had cost him the respect of his servants. It had cost the lives of Uriah and the men he fought alongside with. It had cost Joab his respect for his king, something that would come back to haunt David as Joab sided with David's son Adonijah in an effort to unseat uh, David from the throne. And it had cost the life of Bathsheba's firstborn child. And the house of David would never again enjoy peace throughout the rest of David's reign. Well, as we read through the story, David then takes, yet again, Bathsheba to be his wife. And she would bear him four sons, the youngest of which would be Solomon. But what about this dear sister? A woman who was abused. Who suffered the death of her husband. The loss of her firstborn child. Well, later in life, and now we come to the text that was read uh, this morning, just after the text that I read to you this morning at the beginning of our time together. I had mentioned to you, David's son Adonijah tries to take his father's throne. He's ultimately unsuccessful. Why? Because David did what Bathsheba had asked with, with regard to making Solomon uh, king. And he says, uh, put Solomon on my mule and let him ride through the city a sign of his authority as the king. So Adonijah is passed over. And so after David's death, he goes to Bathsheba and he says to Bathsheba, I want you to go to your son Solomon, the king, and ask him if I can have one of my father's wives as my own. As a clear indication of if Solomon were to, to give in to that request, that it would legitimize Adonijah's claim to the throne and just cause more problems. Bathsheba finds herself yet again caught in the midst of this kind of brokenness, and she goes to Solomon to make this request. Now, a lot's happened here in these few moments, hasn't there? So let me just quickly break it down for you. The first thing we see is Solomon riding through Jerusalem on a mule. That's important to remember, especially as we go forward in the weeks to come. The prophet Zechariah, in chapter 9, verse 9, tells us, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. He is humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And when Palm Sunday comes, brothers and sisters, and we remember what? When Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. A clear statement of his kingship, that he is indeed the restoration of the throne of David. But there's another scene that I want to remind you of. In 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 19. And as, that begins in verse 19. And as Solomon is now reigning, and as his half-brother Adonijah continues to try to maneuver so that he can steal the throne from Solomon. He then goes to Bathsheba, covered with the shame of her life, 
covered with all of the bad things that had happened. And look what happens in verse 19 of chapter 2. So she agrees to go to speak to Solomon. And as she walks into the throne room, verse 19, so Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him on behalf of Adonijah. And the king rose to meet her and bowed down to her. Then he sat on his throne and had a seat brought for the king's mother, and she sat on his right. Now I know to our modern democratic sensibilities we might not have understood all of this, but this is powerful. This woman who had been taken and abused and victimized is now the woman that the king of Israel rises when she walks into the room and bows before her and gives to her a seat of honor. You know, for every situation, there is an invitation, there is a table that is spread, and then there is a bill that has to be paid. And with God, there is mercy for the abuser. There is forgiveness, but there is also justice for the abused. For you see, brothers and sisters, God also offers an invitation to you and to me to confess Him, to place our faith and our trust in Him. And each week a table is spread for us. We'll do that in just a moment. Where we're offered the bread of heaven and the cup of salvation. But what is different comes next. Because with the powers of darkness, with the false gods in our life that offer us an invitation and spread a table before us, those false gods demand of us payment for the bill. God does something different. He pays the bill for us. He pulls us out of the ashes. Are you covered with guilt and shame? Are you truly sorry? The invitation is offered. The table will soon be spread. And you and I will be reminded that the bill has been paid. Will you make Jesus Lord of your life today? Say yes to this question. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and do you accept Him as Lord and Savior? If you've made that decision, will you click on the button if you're on our online.church platform, or will you send us an email at office at southsuburban.com that we can celebrate together that God has raised us out of the ashes.